This episode is sponsored by Linode. Linode is offering listeners of this podcast a $20 credit, which is good for four free months at their lowest plan. Their plans start at one gigabyte of RAM for $5 a month. You can get your servers in any of their 10 data centers, and their high memory plans start at 16 gigabytes. Get a server running in under a minute. They do hourly billing with a monthly cap on all plans and add-on services like backups, node balancers, long view, etc. VMs for full control, running Docker containers, encrypted disks, VPNs, etc. You can run a private Git server. They provide native SSD storage, 40 gigabit network, and Intel E5 processors. They have 24-7 friendly support, even on holidays, and a seven-day money-back guaranteed. So go check them out at linode.com slash myangularstory. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another My Angular Story. This week, we're talking to Lucas Rubelke. Lucas, do you want to say hi? Well, hello, everyone. Now, uh, you've been a regular on the show for a while. You've kind of taken a hiatus lately, but uh, it's always cool to talk and catch up and see what you're working on. But do you want to just give people kind of a quick reminder of who you are, what you do? Uh, Sure. So... Lucas Rubelke, I'm a Google developer expert for Angular and Firebase, which I also love. I've been blogging at you know, One Hungry Mind for a couple of years. I wrote AngularJS in action. Um, I've done front-end masters a few times. And I think, oh, as well as I think I have like 100 videos out on Egghead. And I um, spoke quite a bit at like NGConf and Angular Connect. And so just been around and uh, you know, pretty passionate about um, you know, just Angular and you know, what it's done for my career and just kind of sharing the cool things that I've learned. And uh, so uh, that's kind of where I am and who I am. Awesome. And uh, this is the point where I usually list the episodes that the guest has been on, but you've been on quite a number of them as a regular on the show. So I'm going to forego that um, and, and just go right to my first question, which is how did you get into programming? So... Interestingly enough, when I was, I want to say 10 years old, I thought that I wanted to do electronics. And so when I thought of electronics, it was, um, I actually watched the movie Sneakers, which is kind of a classic hacker movie. And I'm thinking like, like, this is what I want to do is, you know, build cool stuff so I can, you know, be sneaky and whatever. And so I graduated from high school, stayed up all night at graduation party. And the next day I drove up to Minneapolis from uh, Wichita, Kansas, where I grew up, and um, basically started work on Monday. Uh, my uncle worked at an electronics company doing a, industrial electronics, and then a month later, I started uh, in school. I realized very quickly that the electronics I was learning, which was low-voltage electronics, was not quite um, <laughs> you know, what I thought I was going to be doing. Like, you know, so I spent a lot of time like fixing televisions and, you know, CRT monitors and, you know, whatever. And it was just really like, Hmm. But, you know, because of loss aversion, you know, kind of a year in, I'm like, I don't know if this is what I want to do, but we did this course on industrial electronics with uh, programmable logic gate controllers. And all of a sudden the lights went on. So I went from being a straight B student to all of a sudden getting straight A's for that one quarter and then I was right back to a solid B student. And I didn't understand at the time, like, why was this so fascinating to me? Well, then I moved back to Wichita and I'm doing, I get a job. And essentially what I'm doing is just soldering resistors and stuff onto boards. And I realized then as I'm looking around at these, these kind of these guys around me that, you know, they're making 18, 20 bucks an hour. Not to disparage that, but, you know, they were really kind of at the, the top of their pay range 
you know, hadn't changed, hadn't evolved, you know, just couldn't wait for the weekend to get on their boat and, and drink beer. And I'm just like, this is not really for me. So I figured computers is what I want to do. So I went and got my A plus certification, went and got my Microsoft certified uh, engineer plus internet certification. So, I mean, I just basically went and took all these tests. The funny thing is that um, it really was a double-edged sword because I had no experience. I just happened to be really good at taking tests and applying myself. So about the time I got my MCSE plus I, the dot-com crash happened. And so now the market's flooded with people with years of experience that I'm competing against. And so people wouldn't give me a job from where my certification was, but they wouldn't start me at the bottom because they figured like the minute he gets some experience, he's out of here. I became very bitter and I decided, you know, screw technology, I'm out of here. And I had an opportunity to be a partner in a landscaping company. So, you know, I'd go and I'd mow lawns and I really quite enjoyed it. But I still had the bug. So I'd go home and I'd start playing around in Photoshop and different things and making little logos and whatever. And I realized like maybe I should consider going back to college for not basically computer networking or hardware, but maybe software. So I moved down to uh, Phoenix to live with my uncle and aunt. There's a college out here. And I think within like the first month or two, I discovered um, at the time it was Macromedia Flash. And I remember the first time I did this animation of like I was fading one picture into another. And it was like this light, just this light from heaven came down, choir of angels. And I'm like, this is the coolest thing <laughs> ever. I mean, it was just, it was crazy. I think I still have it somewhere. And from that point on, I think I had just like general ed stuff to like take to get my degree. So I had like 105 credit hours and 15 to go. And I just tuned it all out. Like I would just go home. I basically build flash stuff like all night long. Wait, wake up at 11 and just start all over. And so I pretty much dropped out of high school or out of college. And somebody I knew just said like, hey, like, you know, I own a company. My clients need websites. You want to come work for me? And uh, that was kind of pretty much it. So I started in Macromedia Flash, within, which was then acquired by Adobe. And the funny thing is, so just to bring this kind of full circle, is I learned how to program via ActionScript. And learning how to do, like, for instance, object-oriented programming and design patterns in a prototypical language was pretty challenging. So I said, you know, I need to level up. I need to learn you know, some new skills. So I went down to the community college. I signed up for a class on uh, Java because this was kind of where Flash was going ActionScript with um, ActionScript 1 to ActionScript 2. They introduced its classes. And it would really compile back from you know 2.0 to 1. So interesting kind of history there about how ActionScript evolved. And so I went to the community college, and once I figured out how to run the compiler uh, for Java, I basically locked myself in a room for six weeks and went and basically became a sun-certified Java programmer. And went back, took my final, and I... I think I've touched Java, Java uh, maybe one or two times since then. <laughs> but that's really where I started to kind of wrap my mind around like design patterns and object-oriented programming, um, you know, et cetera. And 
Anyways, one day I was doing JavaScript for a client or I was building web stuff and they came and they said, we have this JavaScript problem. We don't know what it is. Um, can you look at it? Well, I realized like, wait a second, this is almost exactly like ActionScript. And um, I was able to fix it. And so I kind of started playing around with JavaScript um, as well in tandem with, with Flash. The, uh, you know, as we know, the Flash platform is, you know, has a very limited um, existence. You know, it started to do... Yeah. You know, we just kind of saw where it was going, and um, it was kind of about that time I started uh, making that shift into JavaScript, which was, you know, kind of felt natural of going from ActionScript 1.0 to 2.0 to 3.0. It kind of was like I just went back to ActionScript 1, which is very similar to ES5. So it was, you know, ES3 at the time. They did ES4, which, mm-hmm. you know, pretty much died. Interesting story there. And then they went to ES5, which we're on. And so, you know, Azure script being based on ES3, you know, kind of the standard vanilla JavaScript being ES5. It's like I just kind of, you know, went back in time and was just writing Azure script one again. And so that's kind of where, um, kind of from going from electronics to programming to kind of just prior to, you know, when I got into Angular. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, you get into web, you get into Flash. I mean, what was it about Flash that, that clicked for you? Was it just that you could uh, build visual stuff or I, I'm just curious, you know, what, what was the appeal there that, that made you want to stick around? So this is a really, really good question. And I think at the end of the day for me, and I would say most programmers and people in this space, they feel this way, whether they've articulated it or not is I really was into the idea of creating things that invoked emotion within the viewer. Uh-huh. And so if you go back and look at some of like the old flash stuff, it was a really immersive experience. Yep. And, you know, I had the luck, um, you know, the privilege and the honor of working on some pretty high profile stuff. Um, you know, for instance, um, I did some stuff for Oakley um, that won, I think like a site of the month or something, um, you know, Ford and, you know, Disney and a lot of these different things. Um, you know, being able to contribute and create these immersive experiences in Flash was really, really exciting to me. And then, um, you know, kind of through the progression of the Flash player, you then had the ability to actually, you know, pull in server-side data and get remote data. And, you know, so this is kind of pre-AJAX and start to load in, you know, like server-side data and really kind of create that, you know, that kind of full-stack experience that we kind of take for granted now. And so being able to take something very functional, like, you know, create, read, update, and delete to the server, and kind of merge it into this immersive experience that was, you know, really pleasant, was just really fascinating to me. And so, um, you know, at the, kind of at the core is, you know, I just love animations. I love making things move. I love um, creating these experiences. Why, you know, typically, um, I think this is where, like, Matthias Namilla and I really hit it off, is because, you know, he's creating the animation library for Angular because I think that when things look good and they perceive that they look good, people mentally assume that they work better. So this is kind of a documented phenomena. And so being able to do that in Flash, which at the time, um, because of browsers and JavaScript, that just was not possible on that platform at that time. So it was just the possibility to create these interactive experiences is what really drew me to the Flash platform. Awesome. 
So, you know, we fast forward through uh, some of the, the, the time that you explained to us what you were doing. How did you, how did you find and get into Angular? So, um, we saw the kind of the writing on the wall in the Flash community of like, you know, this is really not going anywhere. And so there was a lot of kind of flex Flash developers looking for, you know, kind of a JavaScript alternative. And I tried my hand. Um, so I started kind of in jQuery and then I tried Backbone, which was really at one point kind of the only real framework at yep. the time. And um, so that's kind of where I started. But it just felt you know really loosey goosey. And I mean, by admission, you know, it's just like, is it an MVC? It's like whatever you want it to be. And so I thought Backbone was OK, but, you know, it really lacked like the structure that I was used to by building these full on uh, flex projects. And so I gave um, XJS a, a try and it was just um, without going into details, it was just really frustrating and hard for me to get up and running. And some of the philosophies around, you know, how they you know, really just kind of you can figure these components on the page and you really got to do it, you know, in this very specific way and you got to know the handshake was it was a little off-putting for me. So I was still looking for something to kind of replace, you know, this flex hole in my heart. It's like, well, what am I going to use? I still want to build stuff. And I was doing a job interview for a company and one of the guys was like, hey, like, have you heard of AngularJS? You should give this a try. Like, it's pretty neat. And so I'm like, I've never even heard of it. Like, let me go check it out. And this was the old, like, yellow purple site. So this is like, you know, zero <laughs> And, um, I was, uh, I basically picked it up and within like, you know, five minutes, I basically had it working. There was very clear parallels to what I was doing in flex. And it was just like, it just felt like this natural transition. I'm just like, I'm in, this is it. Um, and so, uh, kind of a, a little bit of a tidbit of a, of a story here is that, um, there was a conference in Denver around flex i think it was called 360 flex and i was kind of in between jobs because i wanted to just focus on learning javascript well i called up the or I emailed the guy who was running and i said like hey like i'm self-employed i'd like to come to this but i'm paying for my own pocket like what are my options and he's like oh well like do you want to be a volunteer and i absolutely and so um, pretty much i agreed to work the front desk because nobody wanted to come in, you know, at 7.30 in the morning and check people in. For me, the opportunity was pretty obvious of like pretty much all these people are coming in, some of who I really want to meet, and I'm now the gatekeeper. And so what's funny about this is um, basically John Lindquist from AKED.io, I mean, I pretty much just like idolized this guy for the longest time. <laughs> He's there talking about, you know, IntelliJ and WebStorm and these different things and you know, basically running a JetBrains booth. Well, he comes through and there I am handing out, you know, badges. And so it's like, John, like, so happy to meet you. And so he's just like a few booths down. So I kept kind of peppering him about, you know, programming. And, you know, he was in AngularJS. And then somehow Thomas Burleson, who was also a Flex guy at the time, um, who we know Thomas as being, you know, Angular like, material. Angular material, like he's just a, an amazing, amazing person. Somehow, like we all started like geeking out on Angular JS, and I just kind of realized, like I'm writing a blog, like I don't care if anybody likes it, I'm I'm gonna do it. And so I started writing these really like 
kind of at the time or when I look back, they're just kind of comical. And then Thomas would write and he'd be like, uh, pretty good, but it could be better. And that just started, you know, kind of the friendship between, you know, Thomas and, and John and myself. But it was just kind of the right place at the right time looking for a framework to replace Flex. And I think, you know, John and Thomas were kind of looking for the same thing. And kind of out of that friendship, I decided to start a blog, which then, you know, started a conversation. You know, Thomas and I became pretty good friends over that time. And then, you know, Igor and, you know, Mishko started to like sound off on the blog and be like, like this could be better. Or like, why would you do this? Or, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. And then it just kind of started from there. That's awesome. John actually lives a couple blocks from me, so um, it's kind of funny to hear you talk about him <laughs> that way because I just know him as a guy. <laughs> so just for anybody listening is, you know, it's kind of surreal being on the other side of the fence, I would say, in terms of like you go to a conference and you're a speaker or whatever. Um, prior to Angular Jazz, I was like on that side of like, oh my goodness, like, you know, John Lindquist is like, he's a demigod. And, you know, these different people. And then, you know, like, you know, Chug was saying, like, uh, he's my neighbor. He's just like a normal guy. Is that, you know, once, you know, I kind of got to know John and, you know, Thomas and realized, like, these are very down to earth, very gracious people that just, you know, love to program and, you know, just really do a good job. And so, you know, before, you know, prior to becoming involved with Angular JS, I just assumed there was this, this chasm between like, you know, these experts in the field, these recognized experts and like everyone else. And now that I've kind of, you know, been on both sides of the fence, I realized like it's actually, that was a purely like invisible script that I constructed for myself. And that, you know, pretty much, you know, at the end of the day, it's just everybody loves to build cool stuff and use great technology. And, you know, John, Thomas, believe it or not, are just normal guys that like to build stuff. So uh, just maybe file that away, you know, if you ever like, oh, I can never talk to that person, like they're famous or whatever. Like John Papa, for instance, you know, we know John, mm-hmm. you know, super famous in the space, just a really nice, normal guy. So that's a, that's a little pro tip I just want to put out there. Yeah, absolutely. It kind of mirrors my experience when I was getting into podcasting. I was listening to a show called Rails Envy, which was um, a Ruby on Rails focused podcast done by Greg Pollock. And if you're familiar with Code School, he's the guy that started Code School. Um, and at the time, I, you know, I was like, oh, podcast, you know, this guy's got to be like, you know, super famous and well-known. And I kind of sheepishly emailed him and just said, I've been listening to your podcast. I think I want to start a podcast. I got an email back the next day. That's so awesome. How can I help? <laughs> you know, and it, it's it's just because he's, he's just a guy, right? Yep. And uh, yeah, we put these people up on pedestals or we assume that they're so far advanced that they, you know, they, they can't even see us clear down here and it's just not the case. Not at all. Very cool. So um, one of the questions that I like to ask on this particular show is what have you contributed to uh, the Angular and JavaScript communities that you're particularly proud of? So um, I've actually made official contributions uh, to uh, the Angular uh, project and um, my first contribution to AngularJS specifically was I noticed there was a spelling error in the documentation, or rather it was in a comment. The, uh, the next one that I uh, contributed was I just basically asked Igor, I'm like, hey, like, is there something I can fix here? And he's like, oh, like, 
you know, I think they had a test for like, you know, post, put, delete or something that there wasn't one for patch. And um, so under the hood, they basically had these this code dynamically writing these tests on the fly to be ran. So it was just a total like mind warp. But, you know, he kind of pointed me in the direction and said, go fix this thing. And you know, I kind of reasoned about it. I ended up being like two lines of code, submitted the PR, you know, it went in and, um, you know, everybody cheered. The crowd went wild. But it was actually, you know, very like a low barrier to entry to get and to actually make that contribution. I'm deviating a bit um, on this. Another pro tip is I've actually contributed to quite a few open source projects in the sense of going through a readme and I notice there's like a typo or there's a spelling error or like a link is wrong. In GitHub, if you see that, you can just open the raw file, change it, and then you know do basically a pull request right in line to that. And so that is the easiest possible way for somebody who is just getting into programming or just new to a community to start to put their name or get on the radar for somebody who, you know, is helpful and useful. And so this is this is something that just takes me oftentimes like 10 seconds, you know, to contribute. So I think I've done stuff for like NGRX and GraphQL. And this thing is by simply starting by, you know, fixing, you know, typos or, you know, there's a link that's broken or something could be said better. If you see that, just be proactive and just fix it and submit a pull request. And most people are thrilled to, you know, to accept, you know, typo and grammar changes and stuff like that. So that's kind of where I started. Um, really, I think the biggest contribution that I've made, you know, in the Angular JS and Angular community is really taking the time to kind of dig in and take some of these complex things that um, I think people were you know, it seemed very kind of overwhelming at first. Like, so I have this graphic that I use for front-end masters. Um, this is the Angular JS big picture, and it's like kind of these eight boxes. Well, at the time, you know, people were just, they were kind of overwhelmed. Like, there's so many moving pieces. And once I distilled it to like these eight boxes, people were like, oh, okay, I got it now. And then going from, you know, into Angular, 2X and above, is that diagram becomes even um, smaller to where you basically just have, you know, modules, routes, um, components, and services. And so I think really, you know, where I kind of see myself providing value to the community is just, you know, one, taking time to, like, think about the process of how I learned something and then communicating in a way that would allow people to kind of bypass all those frustrations. And so just kind of streamlining, you know, some of that skill acquisition. And so a lot of what I talk about when I write is it's also project based of like, Hey, I built this thing and this is how I did it. And so it's like, you know, build a photo slider, build this, you know, do this real time event bus or whatever. And that's just kind of my jam. It's like, I love to build things and I love to talk about it. You take somebody like, for instance, like Todd Motto, who um, owns ultimate angular and makes amazing courses. Um, just a completely different, you know, approach. And, you know, they're in a way, in a lot of ways, very complimentary. And so it's just kind of my style of like, here's this thing that I'm building and this is how I did it. So even on like, for instance, Friday Masters is it's, it's all kind of project based with like an endpoint in mind. So I think just really being available and talking about, you know, some of the hard things I've solved and just sharing those with the community is, I would say, probably like my biggest contribution and certainly like I would say 
the most gratifying contribution. That's awesome. And it's it's funny because I think a lot of times we we focus on the open source contributions. Oh, well, I added this whole feature to Angular 5. Right. And and so, you know, it's like, oh, well, wow, I I could never do that. And it turns out that fixing the documentation or writing blog posts or doing demo videos or walking people through this stuff or putting together courses, I mean, that that's all part of the community that makes a huge, huge difference uh, to people who are coming in or people who are struggling or people who are trying to figure some of this stuff out. And it, it adds enough to the community to where it actually affects and grows the community and brings people in that add more to the community. And so I love kind of highlighting um, both the open source and the community-focused contributions because I think they're both critically important. And, I mean, to that end, you know, Tobias and, you know, Igor and, you know, some of the, the mental juggernauts on the Angular core team is that they've spent an incredible amount of effort building Angular, but they have not spent very much time building things with Angular. So working yeah. on a framework and working with a framework are two totally separate things. And so this is why you have um, you know, people like Stephen Fluin and Rob Urmald that you know, they're in the trenches and they're actually interfacing with clients you know, and building things and experimenting. To that end is... You know, I think if you use Angular a lot and you're competent, it's really easy to get in kind of this reality distortion field that like this is how the world works. Like these are self-evident truths that everybody knows until you kind of get out of that bubble and you go to like a Fortune 100 company and, you know, they're maybe three years behind on the curve and you have to stop and realize like things that we take for granted is, you know, these are still very challenging concepts for, you know, maybe like enterprise developers or somebody who's been, you know, heads down on a certain stack and now all of a sudden they have to come in and, you know, kind of learn front-end development. So a big example is, you know, .NET developers who've done server-side rendering, um, you know, that's all they've ever done. And now, like, they're realizing, like, we need to move more towards the single-page application, you know, paradigm. And they're now having to basically translate their skill set into building front-end applications. I run into this all the time. Of, I knew Java or I knew .NET. Now I'm having to learn how to build JavaScript applications. Well, there needs to be people that can help bridge that gap and kind of convey these concepts in a way that makes sense for these people. Because really, in a professional setting, this can actually cause a lot of anxiety. And I've seen it where, you know, somebody's like, oh, like I only know Java and now I got to learn JavaScript. And, you know, if I don't learn this fast enough, I'm going to get fired or I'm going to get passed over. And this is, there's a real emotional component there. And so for somebody to come in and, you know, really with it, I think a deep sense of empathy. And I think this is important for, I would just say across the board, anybody I know who is at the top and is, is a recognized expert, I think intrinsically they have a deep sense of, of empathy for the community because to come in and say like, oh, you know, I understand what you're feeling. I was there. Like, let me help you like navigate kind of these murky waters so that you can get up and running and start doing the things that you need to do. Um, you know, even like Ward Bell is, you know, I think we have this, it's almost kind of a comedy sketch now 
kind of this you know relationship that him and I have of you know, we always seem to be fighting about redux. But the one thing I can say about Ward is and I think philosophically we're kind of coming at the same thing in different directions. But he really cares about people in the community. And that's so very important for the health of the community for people to get excited and to, um, you know, keep building. And so that's just, I think a key part is, you know, there's people who make, you know, really technical contributions to a framework, but then there needs to be people at the front lines who realize like, oh, I realize this is totally new. Let me say this in a way that makes absolute sense to the point where it just might be three or four boxes in a diagram. And it's like, this is angular. And then you build off of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, talking about not just simplifying the ideas, but also, you know, you and Ward, you're talking about the the back and forth you have over Redux. And uh, we just released, as we record this, an episode um, where we talked about NGRX entities. And, of course, you know, he got plenty of ribbing because NGRX is built around the Redux pattern. And, uh, but at the same time, you know, he was also able to clarify, here's when you probably need something like this. And here's when you don't. And here's when you need something maybe right. more like breeze, or maybe you don't need anything. You just need a couple of services or you, you know, you go pull in Apollo or something like that and just do uh GraphQL. And, yep. and just by having that clarification, oh, okay, this is, this is an approach to these problems. And if I don't have those problems, I'm going to go and I'm going to go through a whole bunch of pain figuring this stuff out, and it's not going to solve anything for me. And then the flip side is, is if you're having these pains, go look at some of these solutions because they will solve problems for you. The, oh, sorry to interrupt, go ahead. No, that, that, that's basically my, the entire idea I was trying to get across. But yeah, sometimes it's not, here's how you do it. Sometimes it's, don't bother doing this for a while. The Even to that end, um, last year at NGConf, there was kind of a mix-up around Adventures in Angular. And it ended up, Ward and I showed up in a room, and I, I think we talked about this in one of the episodes. And it ended up being just me and Ward and like 50 people in this room. And we're like, like what are we doing? Everybody's like, let's talk about Redux. And Warren and I are just like, are you like, did we just walk into the biggest trap in the world? <laughs> and even as I saw John Papa walk up and he saw what we were talking about, he looked and then he just kind of like, you know, very quietly, like just, you know, went and did something else. And, you know, as Ward started talking about, you know, kind of why, you know, his, his hesitation or his apprehensions around Redux, my temptation or, you know, I'm feeling like the need to like defend it and, you know, jump up mm-hmm. and be like, you know, like, Ward, you're wrong. Like. And I just said, you know what? I'm just going to let him talk. And it was just like, sit down, shut up, and just listen to what he has to say. Like, hear the entire thing. And so as, as Ward started talking, and I'm just listening, and I'm thinking like, you know, kind of the question, you know, the why behind the why or the five whys. I'm thinking like, why is this, you know, like, why is he hammering on this? And I started thinking like, well, you know, what's really important to him? And we realized that, you know, I started, I started asking about like, well, you know, what about like single source of truth and, you know, control flow and the things that are important, you know, to people who use Redux is, you know, managing state, flow control, you know, managing code volume, reducing code volume. And it was kind of this really magical moment where we kind of realized like, you know, Ward is kind of on the breeze side. I'm on the Redux side, but we really care about the exact same things. 
mm-hmm. is you know basically you know a sane way to manage state and a you know a way to manage control flow through your application without losing your mind and in the process you know reducing you know code volume as you do it and we kind of just realized like at the end of the day patterns aside you know technologies aside like we fundamentally care about the same things and you know by just taking that time to you know to listen and understand what was important to ward i kind of realized like we can agree on you know these fundamental concepts that are both important to us and if we use redux or we use breeze and it's interesting that you bring up apollo because there is a there's a scenario um where as much as I love Redux, if I'm using Apollo, because I also like GraphQL, I probably would not use NGRX because Apollo does a lot of that stuff under the hood. And so understanding kind of what's important or what's driving these decisions allows you to say this is not the right, you know, really the right thing for this case or this one is a better choice and, you know, and go with it as long as you understand these are the underlying principles that I'm trying to preserve and I'm going to choose the best technology to do that. And I think this is really where like Ward and I, um, we've kind of, you know, hit this equilibrium of like, we care about the same things. If you want to use Breeze, go ahead or Redux or GraphQL. As long as we are writing great software that people love, you know, it all just kind of works out in the end. Yep, absolutely. I think I'm going to leave that there and move on to the next part because... Right. I, I think you made your point, and I think it, you know, I completely agree with it. So <clears throat> the next question that I'm going to ask you is, what are you working on now? So um, as you mentioned, I'm kind of on, I, I've been on a hiatus from Adventures in Angular. And um, the reason being is the majority of my time is spent these days running a product consultant consultancy um, that I have called VenturePlex. And then I have on, in parallel to that, I have a marketing um, agency called Transaction Factory. So they're just two sides of the same coin. Um, You know, one is we build the things and then on the other side, we market the things. And what's interesting about this, and so this is, you know, going to kind of bring me up to like, what am I doing with Angular now? Is that I found that when you, or I found specifically myself, is when I go to a client, on-site with a client, I'm talking to the stakeholders, so not the developers, but the stakeholders, what they are looking for and their needs and their wants and their desires are completely different than when you talk to a developer or an individual contributor. And so kind of the abstractions or the levels in which I approached a problem started to shift. Instead of saying, oh, like we can use Angular to solve this problem because of, you know, TypeScript and Redux and da-da-da-da-da, that once I start to talk to, for instance, like directors of engineering, what they care about is this is what we're going to build and can it be built in this time frame for this amount of money? And so then the approach um, or really the kind of the mind space that I'm in when I'm having those conversations is really around, you know, strategies and not necessarily tactics of like, okay, here's how we bring this product to market or here's how we ship this product on time. And so just by having those conversations, um, it's really 
kind of elevated or how I think about you know, really the product development lifecycle. And in terms of instead of geeking out about like, oh, like, you know, an Angular, you know, it's this reactive framework and, you know, with unidirectional data flow, with component driven architecture and, you know, observables and da, 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 da. It's how fast can I build this thing or how efficiently can I build a great piece of software that customers are going to love? Interestingly enough, underneath of me, I now have, you know, 12, 14 developers that you know, are all using Angular to that end. Mm-hmm. And so that's um, kind of myself. I've been a bit removed from in terms of like individual contributing and more so kind of scaling horizontally and enabling, um, you know, my team to really, you know, take, you know, the goals and, you know, kind of the the stuff that we need to do and run with it. With that said, um, you know, I think especially in the enterprise is that, you know, Angular is very well suited for those kind of applications. Um, I've been in a room with, you know, a bunch of developers from a Fortune 100 company who knew Java. And they're just like, JavaScript is weird. <laughs> I showed up TypeScript and they're like, oh, like, that makes so much sense. And so, you know, when you look at, you know, TypeScript and then you start talking about like reactive extensions and, you know, design patterns. And when you can talk about um, design patterns in, you know, concrete terms in ways that they understand, all of a sudden now, like the kind of the barrier to entry from, let's say, Java to JavaScript via TypeScript becomes much, much smaller, and so this is really kind of the space I've been in, um, you know, for the last, I would say, six to eight months is helping large teams build, you know, projects and build products on a kind of a large scale using Angular. And, you know, kind of it's funny coming from the flash side of like, oh, I'm moving these things around the stage and, you know, it's this immersive animated experience to, you know, being in enterprise, you know, kind of an environment and helping, you know, these teams you know, write these kind of large scale applications where, you know, hundreds of thousands of users are using it and knowing that because of the way that Angular is architected with component driven architecture, you know, unidirectional data flow with NGRX, you know, these different things and, you know, the sophisticated build tools that exist, you know, really across the board is, you know, being able to transition from like Java and .NET into, you know, a front end framework is, you know, really, it's a lot better than it was, you know, I would say even, you know, a year ago. And so I'm kind of, I'm still very much involved with Angular, but I'm kind of doing it horizontally and through proxies. I go and champion, um, you know, it, Angular and, you know, these different things at the stakeholder level and then, you know, help the teams, you know, kind of implement those in the trenches, if that makes sense. Yep, that makes sense. I'm I'm curious, has your, as you focus more on, um, building apps that people want to use and doing that efficiently and then also focusing on the market does that does that change your approach to angular at all um i think it in terms of and so you know when you talk about like for instance strategies versus tactics and uh-huh. you know strategies are kind of these broad strokes and then tactics are kind of very specific things that you can do um so obviously i know angular you know i would say you know really well that and I still, you know, I still build stuff with Angular, you know, pretty much every day. Like, you know, I have these kind of projects and I will continue to do so. But 
as it relates to how I communicate and how I think from a business standpoint is I, it tends to be more like strategies. And um, so one of my clients, you know, we just had a huge conversation around, you know, they're on some proprietary um, version control system. And, you know, they don't really have automated tests in these different things is that when I talk to the stakeholders, the conversations is around, do you realize that because this takes three times longer to build than it should, you are paying at best three times more than you should for this thing to get built? That's costing a lot of money. Like, are you okay with that? And once I get them to realize like, hey, we could build this faster and better, then I start to immediately transition into like, you know, so it's kind of this, um, you know, pain, you know, aspirations, um, you know, solution kind of this framework. So the, back to these, you know, kind of copywriting frameworks is a lot of times I start with like, are you building your software fast enough? Are you happy with how fast your software is getting built? And then, you know, from there it's like, well, you know, imagine you actually were able to deliver on time or even, you know, earlier with extra features. Or instead of, you know, being on these three-month release cycles, and this is this this happened just, you know, a couple weeks ago, what if being on a, you know, instead of a three-month release cycle, you were on a two- or a four-week release cycle? And, you know, that was that was a big deal to one of the directors I was talking to. And so, you know, again, talking about, like, outcomes and not necessarily, you know, features and specifications is, like, Okay, you know, instead of being on a three-month release cycle, let's be on a two- or a four-week release cycle. And this is how Angular is going to help you do this. And so, you know, you start with, you know, very much of like what is the the underlying, you know, business problem or desire that we're, you know, we're trying to solve or the pain point. And once you get them to agree on that, you know, then I come in and I say, well, you know, this is why I think Angular is a really good fit for this. And, you know, one of them is, I think, you know, TypeScript and reactive extensions, you know, and the mm-hmm. build tools and different things is just very much congruent with, you know, what, um, you know, people in the Java and .NET space have been doing, you know, for years where, you know, for me, I remember the first time I started getting, you know, actual code hinting in WebStorm and auto imports, like that was a really big deal. But anybody who's done Java or .NET, they're just like, that is like, that is so old and like, yeah. you know, there's they're like, what? Like, we've had that forever. Happened? We've had that forever. And it's like, well, it, you know, getting code hitting in auto imports in ES5, forget about it. Like, it just didn't happen. But now, because of, you know, the way that ES6 and TypeScript and everything is going, you start to seeing, you know, kind of this convergent of kind of skill sets where people can go from Java to JavaScript and back. And, um, you know, I, I think that's pretty exciting. Very cool. Well, let's go ahead and start wrapping up. The last segment of this show is picks. Do you run your own freelance business? Or maybe you're thinking about picking up some business on the side. Well, then you need FreshBooks. FreshBooks is the quickest and easiest way to get invoices out to your clients. It's easy to use. It works anywhere, available from any device, uh, on the desktop, iPhone, iPad, Android, and all of your data is backed up and secure. And it makes it really easy to get organized and get paid. You'll be tracking time, logging expenses, and invoicing your clients in no time. You can also save time billing, freeing up several days per month to focus on the work that you love, and you get paid faster. FreshBooks customers are paid on average five days faster because there's a link on the invoice that says pay me now. And it's a great way to grow your business. Plus, 
FreshBooks is offering a 30-day trial. That's right, 30-day trial if you try them out. So go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Once again, for a 30-day trial, go to gofreshbooks.com slash devchat and enter devchat in the how did you hear about us section. Do you have some picks for us? Oh, I do have some picks. So I have three picks. Um, my first pick is a pair of sneakers by Cole Haan. Um, it's the Grand Cross Court 2 sneaker. Um, black leather with uh, black soles. Um, I, there's an outlet by my house. I bought a pair. I loved them so much. I went back and bought another pair. I had this nightmare that I wasn't able to, I was never going to be able to get any more of these ever again. And so I basically found them online. I bought three more pair. Um, they are just super comfortable and um, I think they're you know 90 bucks or less and they're just the best tennis shoe that um, I've ever owned. My second pick is um, Tribe of Mentors by Timothy Ferris. So this is kind of the um, last year he wrote Tools of Titans, which I've given away like 25 copies. I love the book. Um, he just released uh, Tribe of Mentors and he basically got you know, all the people in his network you know, that were kind of important and asked him the same like eight to 10 questions. And it's been you know, super interesting, super valuable, tons of you know, really good actual material um, within the book. Um, what that said is I think books is pretty much one of the most ridiculous return on investments that you, know, you can ever you know, possibly imagine that I can go buy an $18 book and get hundreds of thousands of dollars of return you know, by implementing you know, even just a single idea. So Tribe of Mentors, uh, super amazing. And then last but not least, um, I don't play a lot of video games, but there's this game called Cuphead that is kind of this vintage, retro, um, kind of a classic Disney style. And um, it's just been uh, a lot of fun to play. And I've actually been playing with my three and six-year-old. And um, so Cuphead is, is quite a fun game. I think I bought it for like 15 bucks. And uh, it's been a blast. Very cool. Um, I'm going to jump in here with a few picks of my own. Um, first of all, um, I'm going to pick a book I've been listening to lately. It's The E-Myth Revisited. Uh, terrific book. Oh, that's uh, good. Yeah, that's yeah, And uh, yeah, it just talks about organizing your business and putting stuff together that way. And yeah, I, I'd read it before and I had implemented some of it, but I'm going back through it and saying, okay, I've, I've really got to do this stuff and, and you know, build my business up uh, kind of the, the turnkey solution way, right? Even though if, even though I'm, I'm not planning on um, franchising it or selling it or anything like that, um, just all of the rest of the wins as far as not having to be involved in the middle of everything. Um, yeah, it just seems like a huge, huge deal to me. So I'm going to pick that. And then um, for Christmas... My in-laws got my wife and I um, basically their Sega and Atari knockoffs, and they have hard drives in them with all the games on them, and they have um, they they have the original uh, game paddles that, that oh, came, came with the systems. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, they're they're manufacturing them now, but anyway, so those are really fun to be able to just hook up to the TV and play a game that I haven't played in thirty years. <laughs> so. Um, been enjoying that as well. Um, so I'll put links to all of that stuff, uh, in the show notes, but yeah. Uh, one last thing, Lucas, if people want to, uh, hire your company or follow you or see what you're working on these days, um, wh where do they go? 
so my company is uh, VenturePlex. Uh, so that's V-E-N-T-U-R-P-L-E-X.com. Um, as well as if you know you basically have something you need to build an audience around, um, we can do that at transactionfactory.io. Um, you can also shoot me a note on my blog, onehungrymind.com, uh, or you can reach out to me on Twitter. Um, it's Simpleton, S-I-M-P-U-L-T-O-N. Um, I do accept uh, direct messages, and um, you know, for the most part, uh, I try to be as accessible as possible. I do like to uh, sleep and, and to eat sometimes, and so, you know, time permitting, I try to be um, as available as I can. So uh, feel free to reach out to me and I'd love to hear from you. If you're building something cool or you're stuck, um, you know, shoot me a line. And if the stars are aligned, I would be more than happy to help out where I can. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming. Um, looking forward to talking to you again, seeing you at NGConf and all of that good stuff. Um, and we'll catch everyone next week. Have a good one. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.